Today's episode is brought to you by our Sharper Together patrons. Our patrons make it possible to continue bringing you these life-giving conversations with Christian leaders all across the globe. As Sharper Together patrons, you can receive exclusive content, early access to episodes, and much more. To find out more about becoming a Sharper Together patron, please visit www.sharperpodcast.com backslash donate. And I spent between May and June of 2019, 47 days in the hospital. I wasn't sure sometimes, you know, is this going to take me down? I didn't think it would, but I'd be lying if I didn't say I had that thought. I wondered if I'd ever be able to do what I do again. And God in his graciousness uh, restored me. And I recently was released by my neurologist. And she said, how do you feel? I said, to be honest, I feel 100%. And she said, I would concur. And then she reminded me that that was nonetheless highly rare. To go through what I had been through pretty much unscathed from a central nervous system standpoint. No brain damage, no neurological implications. But thousands of people prayed for me, and my guess is you were one of those people. So I would say thank you. You know, Jerry Falwell Sr. used to say there's value in the volume of prayer. So again, I learned that God was faithful, and coming through that, I cherish every single day. Welcome to the Sharper Together podcast. This is a show built on the Proverbs 27:17 truth that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. It is our hope that listening to real-life stories in Q&A from leaders of all walks of life, that you'll be encouraged, empowered, and equipped in your walk with Christ. Today's guest is Pastor Bruce Aubrey. Bruce is Senior Pastor at Northside Church in Liverpool, New York. He's been serving in ministry for 43 years, 27 of those as Senior Pastor at Northside. He has a bachelor's in religion and philosophy with a minor in psychology, as well as a master of divinity degree and a doctor of ministry. He's been teaching as an adjunct professor at seminary for 15 years. He's married to his wife, Kathy, of 38 years, and they have four children and 11 grandchildren. I'm your host, Michael Lee. Let's dive into today's episode and stay sharper together. Bruce, thanks so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Yes, sir. I'm glad to have you. My first question for you is, what's, you spent a lot of time with Syracuse Athletics. What's your most memorable story uh, that you love to tell about your time with Syracuse? Oh, wow. Well, for the last several years, I've been involved with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And just to be able to speak at huddles at times has been a blessing, whether that was in person or virtual. I think being at the Dome when SU beat Clemson just uh, three, four years ago, whatever that was, that was an amazing night. Uh, my first ever basketball game at the Dome was back in the winter of 93 and 94 when we first moved here. And I was at a Syracuse-Georgetown basketball game, and there were over 30,000 fans in the Dome. And to be at a basketball game with 30,000 fans was just remarkable. But I think I would close the loop by saying uh, my wife and I have been blessed to get to know some of the staff of the women's basketball team. And we've spent many a night at their games and just how that's turned into a family event, if you will, through the years of being able to just enjoy time with my family, going to the Dome, watching athletics. Certainly, we've met some athletes. We're we're friends with some of the coaches. It's really been an outlet for us and a way to love our community. For me, being connected to Syracuse sports was, in a way, a way to love Syracuse, and it was pretty easy to love. Yeah, I love that. What's your favorite story about your life that you love to tell? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I grew up in northern New York on a farm. It's interesting to me that I grew up in an agricultural setting because I learned a lot about hard work. I learned a lot about family. I learned a lot about sowing and reaping, if you will, from a spiritual standpoint. You plant and you watch things grow and you have to be patient and one day harvest comes. And I've certainly seen that parallel in ministry. I was blessed to grow up under the tutelage of a dad who probably the wisest man I've ever known. He only had an eighth grade education, but just incredibly wise. You know, during the years of the Depression, he and his twin brother finished eighth grade, went home to run the family farm. So building a fence with my dad, bailing hay with my dad, uh, milking cows with my dad. We sold the farm just before I turned 16. 
I was starting to sense that the Lord was doing something in my life, wasn't really planning to stay with the agricultural situation. I was a musician, so playing music. I was in jazz band in high school. We actually went to Italy and played. I studied piano for nine years, so I've, I've sung with some gospel music uh, situations. All of those are good memories. Certainly the day I got married would be one of the greatest days of my life. I've been married to Kathy 38 years. When our children were born, I came to Christ at the age of 14, felt a call to ministry at the age of 17. So I guess just the memories that, you you know, when we're up north, I will often visit my father's tombstone. He's with the Lord now. My mom is still living. But I like to go there. I know he's with the Lord, but being there is a way for me to remember who I am and where I came from. And I think that's important. You mentioned your wife, Kathy. You've been married for 38 years. What marriage advice would you give to uh, that believer out there who maybe they're struggling in their marriage, you know, maybe there's a lack of respect uh, and the husband's not loving well. What what kind of advice would you give? I'll give you the short answer and then I'll give you the long answer. Yeah, that'll work. The short answer is don't threaten each other, specifically with divorce. We made an agreement our first year of marriage that we would never say, we'd never use the D word. You know, I'm sure some listening have been divorced and we've all had people close to us who've gone through that. And I'm not here to disparage that. I I do want to say that, you know, marriages should be worked on. Marriages should be fought for. Marriage is a a very sacred thing to God. And, you know, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother cleave to his wife. The two shall become one. But I still remember Mike, first apartment or uh, rental house that we lived in out in the country in West Tennessee. I was in seminary. We just had that conversation. You know, I'm never going to say, neither one of us would ever say, well, I'm just going to go back to my, my parents or go back home. Or Neither one of us would say, I'm going to get a lawyer. Neither one of us would say, I'm going to divorce you. We knew better than to think there would never be disagreements, but we would keep that out of vocabulary, and we have. And I think you know, we were 24 when we got married, and that sounds young now in our generation, but in those days, it almost seemed old. And people were like, you know, do you think Bruce will ever get married? I'm like, I'm only 24. But, you know, I didn't want marriage to just be something that you exist with. I wanted it to be the Lord's will. And so to those that aren't married that are listening, I would say it's worth it to marry the right person. You know, I just, I believe the Lord can make extremely clear what His will is. And He certainly did that with us. And so we've been through valleys and mountaintops, and God is faithful through it all. That would be my challenge. You know, I I haven't always been the great spiritual leader of my home. I mean, I hope I've given direction and clarity and I don't know a person who loves Jesus more than my wife loves Jesus. And she makes me want to love him more. I can't imagine what it would be like to have the same pastor for 38 years. That's her life. Not that it's a bad thing, but I mean, you know, many times people will say, oh, I had this pastor, I had that pastor. And I do that. I think of the ones I had that impacted my life. That's another story that great influences. But, you know, I think with Kathy, I think of that verse, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. What does self-sacrificing love look like in a marriage? And I think marriage is not 50-50, it's 100-100. And it's, it's learning how to love like Jesus loves. And I wish, even now, sometimes I'm on my phone, I'm on a tablet, I'm on my computer. Uh, I need to be more conscious to be listening when I'm listening. And then to know their love language. Gary Chapman wrote the book, The Five Love Languages. Many people are familiar with it. If you're not, it's worth your time to read that book. And he says that we all have a specific language that fuels our tank. Words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, gifts, or physical touch. Well, my love language is affirmation and Kathy's is quality time. And early in our marriage, uh, as I got involved in church work and serving as a pastor and uh, leading that church, and we were sponsoring new churches, and I was on different boards and committees in our local Baptist association or state convention or even nationally, and people would say, you know, we need you on this committee. I'd be like, oh, they need me, you know. But I slammed my schedule full, and we had a six-year-old, a three-year-old, and a a one-year-old. And I remember one night having dinner at home, and we had one of those clip-on type high chairs and our daughter Charity was there. And the thought flew through my head, you know, whose baby is that? And that just sounds bizarre, but nobody knew that conversation was going on in my head. Well, I, I knew it was my baby, but in the moment it was just, and I, it's like, Bruce, that's yours. And she's 15 months old and you hardly know her. 
And, you know, Kathy was missing out on time for me to spend with her. And so I didn't always hear affirmation, but what I did hear it, well, I was just drawn to that and in serving in various capacities. So you have to balance your schedule. The older Bruce would say to the younger Bruce, cherish every single day. Like, Mike, you have two young children. And sometimes that's exhilarating and sometimes it's exhausting. But I would say to you, cherish every day. And you won't always get it right, but you'll grow and you'll learn. And you'll learn through moments like this. I love that. That's great advice. You mentioned some of your influencers in your life. Talk about some of the people that have impacted you the most and what it was about them. Well, we all need people who believe in us, right, Mike? And I think of a man named Norman Bell. He died in 2014, somewhere around the age of 90. He was from North Carolina. Came to Christ around the age of 30 through the faithfulness of a praying wife. And from that felt called to ministry, went to school, began to serve as a pastor, was invited to come to New York. He came in 1960. In 1965, he moved to, that was an hour from me. I didn't know him, obviously, then. I know the story now. 1965, he moves to a community 20 miles from where I grew up. In the process, he leads another minister to Christ. You know, not everyone who talks about God or serves God knows Jesus in a personal way. This man was doing a noble thing, but was not born again. And Pastor Bell led him to Christ. Well, that man uh, later was moved to another congregation within his denomination, which happened to be the one I was going to. And he came to our church to be our pastor. And Lanny Fox came in on fire talking about Jesus like you could know him, like he was your best friend. Man, I wanted some of that. Long story short, one night by my bedside in our farmhouse, I surrendered my life to Jesus and and he saved me. And uh, through the years, we began to hunger more and more for the word. And that led us back to Pastor Bell. We knew him from other opportunities. And he had now become a director of an association of churches. And I just, that man taught me so much about vision and faith. My first pastor in college, I served three years with as a youth director, Jim Clemens. He was an excellent administrator. And I learned a lot about running a church from watching him care about details, and do things well. When I was in seminary, I served with John Webb. And John Webb, more than any other man, not to discredit any of the others, because they all loved Jesus and they were all men who followed God. But you know how sometimes people will get hung up in a certain passage of Scripture and they'll just say, well, that's your interpretation. But I, I see that a different way. Well, I like what Adrian Rogers once said. There's really only one proper interpretation of Scripture, and that's the one the Holy Spirit intended when he wrote it. And Ours is to have good biblical hermeneutics so we can get back to that interpretation and understand it and apply it. Now, Adrian would also say, I've heard him say it, uh, there's only one proper interpretation of Scripture. There's a hundred applications of Scripture. And that's why a phrase like, trust the Lord with all your heart, is going to mean a number of things to a number of people in any given moment. But John, when he came to tough Scriptures that you might see other people hedge on. He, he really sought to be obedient, and that, that put a mark on me. But I think if you were to ask me, and then I, I think of seminary professors and college professors, and just uh, I remember I had a college professor, Dr. Stanley McGill, who once said, we need cool heads and red-hot hearts. Well, that's great, right? I mean, my life mission is to inspire people to know Jesus. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, keep ablaze the gift of God that's in you. I want to keep the fire burning. And I want to be an inspiration for others to come to know Christ. Well, Dr. McGill in college said, cool heads, red hot hearts. Think of the opposite of that, Mike. If we were hot heads with cold hearts, we certainly don't want to be that. So here I am 40 years later telling you what my college professor told me that still lives with me. But lastly, I think just for sake of time, I would hit on a man who was my pastor from 1978 till 1982. By now, we had become a part of a new church plant. We called our first pastor. He was from Georgia. His name is Frank Wood. He's retired now, but I still stay in touch with him. And in four years, he was my pastor. But in four years, he baptized me because I had not yet been baptized by immersion and I wanted to be. And obviously, our, our church required that. I think the scripture requires that. Uh, not for salvation, but for obedience. You know? So I was baptized by immersion. I was licensed. He baptized me. I was licensed to the ministry. Uh, I was later ordained to the ministry. He preached my father's funeral, and he married my wife and I. 
in four years. His influence on my life was profound. And what I learned from Frank Wood is, love God, love the people. Be strong in your preaching and compassionate in your shepherding. Clear in your teaching. And be an evangelist. His imprint on my life is seen by somebody every week. Yeah, I love that saying, cool heads and red hot hearts. I've never heard that, but it's so memorable. That's probably something that's going to stick with me now. So I appreciate you sharing that story. I want to do a follow-up to that story. You had mentioned the pastor that had led the other minister to Christ. And I'm sure you see that a lot because I know I do where people struggle with doubt in their faith of whether or not they're truly saved. And these are believers. Could you just speak into that a little bit? Because somebody who's listening might go, well, what do you mean there's a, a, a pastor or a minister that didn't know Jesus? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Well, and just to clarify on that, I think sometimes people get into ministry and I'm just talking about situations where they want to do noble things. And so it seems a noble thing to tell people about God, and you might want to know more about that yourself and and to help people. And so you could actually, but you could be deceived too, right? I mean, somebody said, how close can you be to Jesus and not know him? Well, the answer to that question is you could kiss him because Judas did. He betrayed him with that kiss on the cheek, likely there in the garden. And that's pretty close to Jesus but not knowing. Now, I want to quickly say, and I'll tell you my own story. I also believe, I've heard at times people speak in such a way that I think they're trying to cause everyone that's listening to them to doubt the genuineness of their salvation. And some would even say it this way, if I can talk you out of it, you know, maybe you never had it or something like that. But I would say this, I also think doubt is a tool of the enemy. Uh, I think sometimes doubt is a mark of genuine faith. Let's take John the Baptist. One of the favorite messages I have that I preach from time to time is called Bring Your Doubts to Jesus. And in fact, you can find that message. I preached it at Cedarville University in 2017. John the Baptist, Jesus said, none born among women greater than John. And John never did a miracle. And his ministry was like six months long. And he was so strong, right? I mean, he called the the religious leaders a brood of vipers. I mean, the guy was bold. But he winds up in prison and he sends two of his followers and said, go ask him, are you the one or do we look for another? And I'm just thinking, wow, because sometimes tough times can make can make us all a little doubtful. So they go. And they, if that had been me going, I would have said, now John wants us to ask you this. I would never ask you this, but John wants us to ask you this. Are you the one or should we be looking for somebody else? They didn't say that. They just went on their assignment, and that's exactly what they asked Jesus. And and it says that they were watching what he was doing and how he was ministering to people. He said, you go tell John what you have seen and heard. Because what's the best kind of testimony? Eyewitness testimony. How the blind receive their sight, a lame walk. And really, he starts talking about the works of Messiah, Isaiah 61. Uh, what is it? Mark chapter 4, where he goes to Nazareth, somewhere along in there. But here, here's the kicker. If you study that passage where Jesus gives the answer to the two uh, disciples of John, he really takes them back to the scripture. Those phrases are actually phrases found in the Old Testament. And here's my thought on that. Even the strong have doubts. But God will give us people in the midst of our doubts to help us get back to Jesus or find that restoration. And then the last thing is he took them to the word of God. Because the word of God is where doubts go to die. If I had serious doubts about my salvation, I would read 1 John, the five chapters. Because verse 13 says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. God doesn't want us just to hope. I'll tell you one more story. In seminary, I actually went to a young man who was on staff at the seminary. He was the son-in-law of the president. And I was noticing, I was from the north and I was in Memphis, Tennessee, and sometimes guys had very clear testimonies. You know, I went down the aisle at a revival meeting, gave my life to Christ. They could name the day, the date, the year, the place. I know it's the spring of 73 at a farmhouse, but I don't know the date. And I started thinking, man, you know, I, do I really know him? Then I hear people talk about somebody that had acted like they knew God all these years, but they didn't. So I went to him and I said, what about that? And he goes, he took me to the book by uh, Hannah Whitehall Smith called a Christian Secret to a Happy Life or something like that. It's a classic. 
And each chapter is called Concerning. And there's a chapter in there called Concerning Doubt. He handed me a copy of the book. He said, take this home tonight, read the chapter Concerning Doubt, come back and talk to me tomorrow. And she says in there that once you become a child of God, the devil knows he's lost you. But one of the ways he can try to make you ineffective is to get you so full of doubt about your own relationship with the Lord. You don't tell anybody else. He's tried to silence you. And sometimes the enemy will use that as a silencer. Last thing I would say is, I do believe, I was reading last night in Amos in my time with the Lord, that there'll come a time when there's a famine in the land, a famine for the word of God. I think we're living in those days. There's a lot of talk about God, but not a lot of teaching of the word of God. At times, I would be very careful. You know, we certainly don't want to be deceived into thinking, well, I made a decision. Well, yeah, but did the Lord save you? Are you a follower of Jesus or just a fan of Jesus, right? I mean, it was Kyle Eidelman that that coined that phrase. So I don't know if that's kind of all over the place, Mike, but that's been my journey. Uh, I've lived through some of that doubt after I know I was saved. I've seen people that didn't know the Lord, but thought they did come to know him. I've seen others tormented that I think could have lived free and just needed to know that like John, even the strong have doubts. So I think we just have to be honest and seek the Lord. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And you mentioned your message on bringing your doubts to Jesus. What I'll do is I'll get the link to that and I'll put it on the show notes here so that anyone who listens can just click it and watch that message or listen to it as well. Talk about what's something that you wish that you would have known when you first came to faith in the Lord. You know, when I first came to faith in the Lord, there was a lot of emphasis on prophecy. I mean, you may hear from time to time people say, I want to study the book of Revelation. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, there's 65 books before that one. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what could be better than that, right? The one who was and is and is to come. When it comes to revelation, it seems like either people get enamored with it, and that's the only thing they want to study, or they never want to study it. When the book actually says you're blessed if you read it. So I think we ought to be reading the book of Revelation. But we studied a lot of prophecy. You know, I'm I'm in my 60s now, and I came to know the Lord in the 1970s in my teen years. And how... Lindsay had written a book called Late Great Planet Earth. And then he wrote another one called There's a New World Coming, which was kind of a modern commentary on Revelation. And we studied that. I knew so much about that. I, I missed some about scripture memorization. I missed some about spiritual disciplines. In 2017, I taught in Africa for a week in Tanzania on the inner life of the leader, on the subject of spiritual disciplines. And I really believe that that's lacking sometimes in, in our lives today. How do you just get consistent in time in the Word? You know, people say, ah, I just don't seem to read my Bible like I should. And Henry Blackaby used to say, you know, you don't have to schedule time to spend time with somebody you love. And so if I'm not spending time with the Lord, it's not a time issue. It's a love issue. I want to just get honest and say, Lord, I, I, I don't love you like I used to. If I loved you, man, when I was dating my wife, my, my parents never had to say, you know, Bruce, it's been a few days since you even talked about Kathy or wanted to go spend time with her. Man, I was begging for the car most of the time. So I would just say spiritual disciplines would be one. Stewardship is another. I mean, I've never really struggled with honoring the Lord with the first fruits. That's an important thing. Sometimes we could all do a better job of being sure that we're being good stewards of everything the Lord gives us. And evangelism was taught me pretty quick. So I don't know. I think the other thing I asked, another mentor of mine has been Dr. James Merritt in uh, Duluth, Georgia, Atlanta area. I met Dr. Merritt in 2002. I learned the value of a good mentor. A good mentor is somebody you can call who in a five-minute conversation can save you three weeks worth of worry. Shouldn't worry anyway. I understand that. But sometimes in ministry, we, get, we lack clarity, especially if we're just in the middle of the situation we can't see very well. But I asked James one time, what's the difference between James Merritt today and James Merritt 20 years ago with regard to your understanding of ministry? And he said that it's a marathon, not a 100-yard dash. Uh, when I taught church growth at a seminary as an adjunct for 15 years, and then a similar type class at a Christian college for three years, I used to remind the students that probably can we probably do less in a year than we think we can, but we can do more in five years than we think we can. And sometimes it's just the daily awareness that, you know, this anybody, if you work out, you understand that. If you tried to save money, you'd understand that. If you, you know, I, if you get a degree, I mean, you don't get a degree because you just do everything in a week. So 
that diligence, that persistence, that's a good thing. You know, I, I think, wow, that's a great question. And I'm scrambling a little bit. So I think I'll stop. <laughs> no, you did great answering it. I actually met Dr. Merritt in Asheville a few years ago and got to chat with him. And he, he actually ended up asking to take my picture, which I'm sure is a, a reverse of what typically happens when people meet Dr. Merritt, uh, because I actually I went to school with his son at Liberty. And so uh, we talked about his son, Josh. And, yep. and so he took my picture and, and sent it off to Josh. And so, yeah, Dr. Merritt is a great mentor and he's written some fantastic books. Talk about what's the most difficult thing about being a pastor. A lot of believers see, you know, pastors and put pastors on pedestals, you know, for various reasons and they see the glamour so to speak in it, but talk about the other side. What's the most difficult thing about being a pastor? Well, in some ways there's never an end. There's always one more book to read, there's always one more message to study for, there's always one more phone call you could make, one more email to respond to. It's exhausting. You're a speaker, so you have to be I mean, people can listen to TED Talks or frankly, some of the best preaching in the land at the touch of a button. I listen to Alistair Begg. I find him extremely effective in communicating the word. I listen to James Merritt. I listen to David Smith out of Dayton, Ohio. I think he communicates with multi-generations as well as anyone I've ever listened to. Jim Cimbala, I listen to weekly. So I like to listen so I can grow and learn, feed my own soul. Because to go back to what do I wish I would have known, I would say that self-care is not selfish care. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's not wrong to love yourself. It's wrong to be in love with yourself. And so I would just say, you know, that's a big deal. Repeat the question one more time because I had a couple other ideas. What's the most difficult thing about being a pastor? Hard conversations with a member, a staff member. I've learned they're actually not hard. They're pretty easy, but they're never comfortable. You have to, you know, it's that conversation you put off for a week or two weeks or a year or five years but it's still there. And you can't control how people respond, but you can be faithful. I think a pastor really has to shepherd people. And I I used to believe that simply means feeding them. It means more than that. But, And you were at our church, Mike, so you know. I mean, my mentor, Pastor Bell, told me, your people will forgive you for a lot, but they won't forgive you for not being fed. So I've always focused on whenever our people come, I want them to get a word from God and clear teaching from the scripture. And I believe that his word will not return void and it will feed their souls. But just, uh, I love what I do. I've been on somebody's church staff for 43 years, minus one summer between college and seminary. And in full time since about 1983, 37 years. I think there's a book called Discover Now Your Strengths by Marcus Buckingham. And you can take a strengths finder test It's where Gallup says that we're kind of all wired certain ways. He calls it our T-lines. 33 Strengths, when I was working on a doctorate ministry, uh, is one of the books I had to read. And you take a 200-question test, and you basically have like 20 seconds to answer each question. Are you this or that? You know, it gives you two options. You pick one. 200 questions. By the time you're done, of these 33 possible strengths, it gives you your top five. Well, my number one was belief. Imagine that. What this guy believes will radically impact the way he shapes his life. Another one was called ideation. That kind of shocked me, but not so much. I have tons of ideas. My guys used to say the problem with Bruce is he wants to ride every horse that runs by. And I used to say to them, you'd be shocked about how many horses I don't tell you about. And not only that, but you ought to be glad I even see the horses. Point being, I'm just an ideas guy. But sometimes ideas, guys, can be problematic because we don't think through all it's going to take to pull off the idea. So you need a lot of others with you. A third strength of mine was strategic, which shocked me because I always viewed myself as more of a visionary than a strategist. I can see it. I don't always know how to get there. But in this context, it meant if they know there's a better future, they can't stay where they are. They've got to strategically figure out how to move forward. One was a learner. I thought everybody wanted to learn and grow and read and whatever. You know, I ask questions to people a lot. I'll say, what's the Lord been teaching you today? People actually warn each other that I will ask them that question. He'll probably ask you this question. What's the Lord teaching you? And I tell them, I say, I'm not, you know, it's probably some nominal accountability, but I'm genuinely interested. And I used to feel a little guilty for it until I realized that saints of old did that all the time. They would say, you know, what's the Lord teaching? And that's like getting fresh baked bread from each other's hearts. 
And uh, I find that very interesting. But I just like to learn. And not everybody does, I've learned. But and, and my fifth one, Mike, was empathy. So ironically, mercy is not my spiritual gift. Prophecy is. I The clear teaching of Scripture, what's right, what's wrong. I think I have some discernment, some leadership, some shepherding. But I don't have a lot of mercy. I don't have a lot of sympathy. It's not that I'm cruel. It's just kind of the way I'm wired. And um, But what I was shocked to learn is I do have a lot of empathy. And that means if I have to have a tough conversation with you, I already feel what you're going to feel when we have that. And, you know, I, even this, if I may say, you know, obviously pastors do weddings, funerals, baptisms, all, all kind of stuff. But I used to think funerals would get easier. Whew, they don't because you've buried family members and you've buried so many others. And it's almost like there's a cumulative grief that you just have to pass on to the Lord. Now, I will say this. In the midst of that, you learn so much from experience. And that's the rich blessing of long-term uh, ministry to the Lord. That really resonates with me, but uh, that's some of what I would say. It's really funny that you mentioned that question that you ask everybody, because that was legitimately my next question for you on this list. Mm. So that's how I know this is a, a Holy Spirit-led conversation here. So what is God teaching you in this moment? He's teaching me to be faithful. There's so much I can't control. I never learned in seminary how to lead a church through a pandemic. When this thing first broke out for us in New York back in March and April, we shut down for 15 weeks. We were online only, but we had been prepared. We were actually going to go online with no idea that we'd be in a pandemic the second week of what became our online ministry. And we were going to test run it the first week. And as it turned out, the test run became the first week and we were on our way. We were just going to expand the ministry and try to have you know a wider impact with the gospel. But our word for the year at Northside has been faithful, that God is faithful. From Lamentations 3, and then certainly 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, faithful is he who calls you, who also will do it. And I love where Paul wrote to Timothy and said, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I've seen the Lord prove himself faithful to his word over and over and over again. So that would be one of the things I'm learning, he's my rock and my refuge. He's the cornerstone. I'm learning that if I like wisdom, I got to ask God and he'll give it to me. That would be some of what I'm learning right now. And I got a long way to go. But that's my heart. Yeah, I love that. We're always learning and growing in our walk. Talk about a season in your life that was really difficult for you. And what did God teach you in that? Well, I think of two things almost. Um, one goes back to a time where I was just too busy. Uh, and we talked about that a little bit. And I had to learn to re-evaluate my priorities. My wife shared with me, we've talked about this publicly, so I'm not out of school here. But my wife said to me one day when I came home, I was in my 30s. It's like 30 years ago. She's like, you've been home 16 hours this week. I said, excuse me? I said, you're keeping track? She said, I have it in a notebook upstairs. And I thought, Houston, we have a problem. Now, I knew. And I know my wife loves me, but I had no idea the depth of her pain or how much, because I think men, you're talking about iron sharpening iron. Men seem to be validated by what they can do, but we're human beings, not human doings. And God wants to evaluate us on the basis of who we are. Not evaluate, but you know what I'm saying? He, he's more concerned about our character than he is the assignment. It's Henry Blackaby used to say he'll never give a large assignment to a small character. So he works constantly to develop us so he can use us for his glory. That was very painful. But I remember it led to a conversation. I was pastoring a church. We had multiple services on the weekend. Our church had two mission churches, so I was kind of the supervisor to those two church planners. I was on an evangelism committee in our association. I was on a search committee to call the director of our association. I was on a state convention executive committee, and I was on a national seminary board. And I said to my wife one day, I said, my father didn't raise a quitter, so this is hard for me. But I need you to know, I will resign everything right now, except the church, because I really don't think that's what you're asking me to do. And it wasn't. And, and, and you know, if that had been the issue, we'd have dealt with that. But it, that wasn't the issue. The issue was, I wasn't doing two or three things. I was doing six or eight or 10 things. 
I said, but here's the schedule where I'm, I'm almost done with this committee right now. This one's done in September. The next one I'm off in March. And I, I laid out what the timetable was. I said, Kathy, I promise I'll let these things go. If you're comfortable with letting me try to finish those, but I also promise you that if it's ever out of balance and, and, and I'm not, that then we'll deal with it quicker. And Mike, that happened about the year and a half before we moved to Syracuse. And Kathy would tell you that by the time we got to Syracuse, I was a different guy. And Wednesday night would come and we, would, we were a more traditional type. And that day we had a midweek prayer service, Bible study. Not that that's a bad thing today, but not exactly what we do right now. We have life groups and other things. And mine meets on a Monday morning at 645. But in those days, you had church Wednesday night at seven o'clock. And my kids would sometimes have concerts. I never batted an eye. It's like, that's what deacons are for. And, you know, I went to my kids event and tried to prioritize my, that was, that was challenging. And then certainly you probably know the story and I'm trying to stay away from it, but I don't want it ever to define my life, but it will always be a part of my story. Uh, in 2019, I was afflicted with a virus that I shouldn't have gotten. It was a form of meningitis. It's possible I got it somewhere here in the States. There are a couple of options. I'd also been on a mission trip, and it's possible I picked it up there. I should not have ever gotten it because I have an immune system. My immune system is not compromised. But somehow there was a weakness, and that virus latched on. It can uh, lay dormant for 2 to 11 months. They thought maybe I had a stroke. They thought maybe I was having an issue with migraines. My third trip to the hospital in a week led to a hospitalization where I had a very serious treatment um, that's kind of like chemo to cancer. This was to meningitis. And I got two bags of chemicals, morning and night, a bag each time for 14 days. And it just destroyed my body and my the disease, thankfully. I came home. I was pretty decimated. A week later, I went back into the hospital. I wound up having to have abdominal surgery because it was. it's not that that caused that, but it complicated things. And I spent between May and June of 2019, 47 days in the hospital. I wasn't sure sometimes, you know, is this going to take me down? I didn't think it would, but I'd be lying if I didn't say I had that thought. I wondered if I'd ever be able to do what I do again. And God in his graciousness uh, restored me. And I recently was released by my neurologist. And she said, how do you feel? I said, to be honest, I feel 100%. And she said, I would concur. And then she reminded me that that was nonetheless highly rare. To go through what I had been through pretty much unscathed from a central nervous system standpoint. No brain damage, no neurological implications. But thousands of people prayed for me. And my guess is you were one of those people. So I would say thank you. You know, Jerry Falwell Sr. used to say there's value in the volume of prayer, which doesn't mean you have to shout louder. But as much as I can't stand social media sometimes, I remain on it because it is one of the sure ways to gather hundreds of people to pray almost instantly. And that's been a blessing. And it was in my life. So again, I learned that God was faithful. And coming through that, I cherish every single day. Thank you for sharing those stories. I know that's not always easy to talk about those things, but what would you say to the person who's listening right now? They have their own health issues that they're going through and they're sitting here thinking, why Why am I going through this? What would you say to that person? Wow, you go through all of that. For me, it's my sister died of brain cancer six years ago this February. And I think she was a stronger believer than I. And there are days I don't know that I feel guilty, but it's close that I lived and she died. I mean, I'm glad I lived, but I certainly wish she could have. Uh, What I do know is God gave us three years that we didn't know we would have with her from the time she was diagnosed. And um, I cherish those memories. I miss her to this day. I would love to call her today and say, would you just pray with your brother? And she would. I think one of the reasons God gave me one sibling is because I'm so easily distracted. He never wanted me to have to look further than her to see genuine Christianity. To that person who's sick, I would say to you, we were made for eternity, not for this world. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord. 
I could name three or four doctors. I don't know their hearts. Only God does. But if they don't have a relationship with Jesus and through my situation, I've always tried to view Mike, whatever I'm going through as an opportunity for me to tell someone about Christ. And I don't always do that well. I'm not an evangelist. I still get nervous. I'm a little more introverted than extroverted. I'm still not sure what I'll say. Uh, Oh, maybe we won't go there with that conversation. But Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. We've all been called to be witnesses. And I honestly believe that that part of my illness may have been so that the medical professionals that I met, and there were many over 47 days, could have an opportunity to come you know, face-to-face with the gospel in some way. I wasn't always the greatest example of that, but that would be my... So I would say to that sick person, don't give up. Don't stop praying. Remember that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Heads I win, tails I win. That's so good. I appreciate that. Bruce, if you were in my shoes and you're sitting down with Bruce Aubrey and you're interviewing him, what's a question that you would ask? You know, I think the big question is always why, right? Why do you do what you do? I I do what I do because I'm called to do that. I had a professor in seminary that used to say, how do you know you've been called to ministry? So if you can do anything else and be happy, do it. And I want to say to every person who's not a pastor listening, and hopefully that's a lot of people, because we need godly men and women in so many fields out in the world. But what's the why? You know, is it just for stuff? Is it just for prestige? You know, when Elijah squared off with the prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Baal and then Elijah, they both prepare an altar. Prophets of Baal call on their God from morning till noon, go through all kind of crazy stuff, trying to get his attention, no response. Elijah prays, fire falls. How long will you halt between two opinions? If God is God, follow him. His prayer is significant. He prays that the people may know that you are God and that I'm your servant. And I heard a guy teaching that one time. I have no idea who it was or where I, if it was a cassette tape 40 years ago. But he said, it's almost like two prayers. Because he prays again that the people may know that you are God. And his teaching was, this is not about people knowing that God is God and you are his servant. It's about them knowing he's God, period. So I have to ask myself constantly, why do I do what I do? Do I just like the attention? I like being in the forefront. Sometimes I don't, but so other times I rise to the occasion. You know, I sometimes, I asked my life group this week, if you could meet with three people from the Bible for two hours and have lunch, who would they be? That was an interesting icebreaker. And for me this week, it was Moses, because I think he was a great leader. Joseph, because of the Christmas story. We don't know much about Joseph after Jesus was 12 years old, but what we know about him before that is compelling enough to know that he was a simple man who did the right thing. And I think I would probably ask Bruce Aubrey, are you healthy? Are you pacing yourself? I was asked one time what my purpose in life was by a guy that was a strong businessman who'd worked with some very reputable companies. And I had led him to Christ. And I used to love to pick his brain for business and had a chance to help him grow spiritually. And I said, well, I know what I want to write on my tombstone. He goes, you do? I said, well, yeah. I said, what do you want on your tombstone? I said, he was a good husband and a good father. And um, he said, then we're done. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know what you want on your tombstone. It's like, well, yeah, but we're not done. you know. And, and here's the thing, Mike. I don't feel like I've always been a good husband and I don't feel like I've always been a good father. But I have known that no size church or ministry would ever mean more to me than a wife who still loves me and I still love her and four kids who love their dad and we're still connected. I told my son at one point about nine years ago, I said, I think I got no disrespect to my family, but I think I got to add to my tombstone. He said, what's that? I said, and he loved pastors. My father honored the office, whether he always agreed with the pastor or not. And I watched that. Uh, from afar. And sometimes I feel like I've been the recipient of his faithfulness to that attitude. You know, I know what it what it means for guys to be doing what I do. And I know it's not an easy journey. And I know sometimes it's overwhelming. Like I was saying earlier, you know, you're a public speaker. Some people would say a fundraiser. I hate that. It's uh, I don't view giving and ministry as fundraising. I, but you are called the challenge of the people in stewardship and it takes money to do what you do and uh god's work um there's leadership 
when you lead a small church, you, you, you lead a church. And then a medium-sized church, you lead leaders who lead a church. And then a larger church, you lead leaders who lead leaders who lead leaders who lead a church. And, you know, it's how to, I'll tell you this one. My son and I were coming home from church one night and uh, we got home and he said, Dad, uh, Exodus, I think it was Exodus 18. I'd have to look it up to be sure, 17 or 18. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, he was a teen, I think. And I, I think he really felt like I needed to look at it. And I sensed that in our conversation, but I never looked it up. But when I went to bed, he had opened a Bible by my bedside to that passage. And I thought, oh my goodness. It's a story of where Exodus, where Moses speaks with his father-in-law, Jephro. You know, what you're doing is not good. So set out rulers over hundreds, thousands, rulers over thousands, rulers over hundreds, rulers over fifties, rulers over ten. Moses couldn't do it all. And it doesn't matter whether you're a doctor, you're working in a factory, you're in the medical field, you're in ministry, you're on a college campus. Reality is you're going to get caught into thinking you got to do it all. No, nobody can do it all, which you can't do everything, but you got to do some things. It actually speaks to what you had talked about before when you were sharing your story about 30 years ago when you were struggling to really make sure that your time was well balanced between your home life and your work life. And so that kind of really speaks into that as well. I think I would just hit on that too, if I may. Um, Don't underestimate the importance of exercise. I've always been active. I would run in my 30s and 40s, and then it kind of reached the point where my knees didn't like that so much anymore. So then I got very serious about the elliptical machine. When our youngest daughter was born, I was 41, and I went back to the gym because I didn't want to just let myself go for two reasons. I didn't want to look like, I didn't want to just let myself go. I I wanted to, I'm not obsessed with physical fitness. I think you can be, but I do want to be healthy. So, you know, the Bible says bodily exercise profits little. And some people, that's their favorite verse of scripture in the Bible. Because it, it's not that big a deal. Bodily exercise, probably a little. But godliness, that's more important, in other words. But I know, like, when I got so sick a year ago, they were like, do you stay active? I was like, well, yeah, I swim three days a week. And I I lift usually three days a week, lightweights. But I, I like to try to prevent osteoporosis by building some bone density. And they told me that the fact that I came into that situation in some kind of shape really worked to my advantage. And so I think we have to be careful to build into our times. For me, I was a runner. Then it was the elliptical. Now I swim. But you've got to stay active. For when you start getting older, motion is lotion. So you just keep moving. Yeah, that's great advice. I, I actually laughed there a little bit when you shared about that verse because a few weeks ago I got to preach. And one of the verses I shared, I think it's Proverbs 27, 1. It talks about how the wicked run when no one chases them. And so I, I made a little joke there. That's why I quit running. <laughs> I've only got one more question for you, Bruce, and our time is done today. So I appreciate you. My final question for you is if you had an opportunity to say one thing to this audience of listeners, can be anything you want, one big encouragement, what would that be? Be four words. Stay close to Jesus. The word says, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. When Jesus gives a message to seven churches, the book of Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, first church, Ephesus. Great church, good teaching, good programs. I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. There's a difference between losing something and leaving something. And we have a tendency to forget what matters most. And I think you stay close to Jesus by consistently pouring his word into your life. I read five chapters of scripture a day. It's what I do with my accountability partner right now. Now, there's a time I didn't even read daily. And I'm a pastor. And I would sometimes say, well, you know, I'm in the Word all the time, which is true. I'm studying for this, studying for that. But for me, and sometimes people say, well, I read, but I don't get anything out out of it. Well, that's not the issue. The issue is you got it in you. And there have been times, Mike, when I've needed answers to questions and God brought scriptures to mind. I don't even remember memorizing. But it's one of the reasons I listen to sermons. It's one of the reasons I read the scripture. I sowed it in my heart and it was there when I needed it. And so you stay close to Jesus by being much in prayer. I was reading this morning, Acts chapter 1. We just started a book of Acts, my accountability. A gentleman in our church, I asked him three years ago if I could disciple him. And we became accountability partners in scripture reading. And we still are. In Acts 1, where they were gathering in the upper room, you remember that? And they devoted themselves to prayer. In Acts 2, 
the early church devoted themselves to prayer and to teaching and to fellowship and breaking bread. Stay close to Jesus. That's what I would say. Bruce, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for joining me today. My privilege. Thank you. Would you pray as we close out the show? I will. Lord, I remember when you sent Mike to Syracuse and you sent him and his wife to our church. And then they were a part of a small group. And then to watch how you've worked in his life since he's moved to the Carolinas and what you're doing in his life today. I just rejoice in this son in the ministry whose heart is growing for you. And I thank you for this podcast that he's using to encourage others. And I want to pray you bless him and his family and guide them. I pray, Lord, anything I've said today that's not helpful, you just take that away. And what I've said that was really from you and could be helpful, you'd use it strongly for your glory. And Lord, I pray for the listeners. You know everyone. You know the details of their lives, the strength and the weaknesses, the places where pride has become a stumbling block. And you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. The ones who just feel defeated and discouraged and are ready to give up, help them know today not to grow weary in well-doing, for in due season they'll reap if they don't faint. For those who've wondered, you know, and, and maybe they're listening to this because they thought, you know, it's time for me to grow again, that they would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for hope, for encouragement, for truth, for grace, and you'd help us stay close to Jesus. Thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us. I know that, Lord. Sometimes in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our lives, we drift. It's dangerous to drift. So may we be very intentional. Deliberate, not legalistic, not ritualistic, but diligent in our walk with you. Lord, keep us faithful and thank you that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Sharper Together podcast. If you want to hear more incredible conversations just like this, please make sure to subscribe to the Sharper Together podcast on your favorite listening device. You'll receive each episode downloaded directly to you so you never miss a show. Would you take a moment and subscribe and review this podcast because the more subscriptions and reviews we receive means more and more people that will receive and hear about these life-giving conversations. You can find more information at www.sharperpodcast.com. We'll see you next time as we stay sharper together.